last year was the 50th anniversary of one of my favorite movies, The Sound of Music. I love the history, I love the plot, the good versus evil, the hope, and of course, the music. I had the privilege in uh, 1989 to go to Germany on a summer uh, missions trip through Baptist Mid-Missions through Cedarville University. And while I was there, I was able to take a day trip to Salzburg, Austria. I got to see many of the sites uh, that you see throughout the movie. got to visit Mozart's home. I got to slide down this really long wooden slide in a cave. Because Salzburg is famous for their salt mines. Salz, salt, salt city, Salzburg. The sound of music is so well known that right now, right now, if I just broke out into song, other than covering your ears, we'd all could start singing, right? Doe, a deer, a female. You know, this morning, Jeff, warming up on his saxophone, was playing Do Re Mi this morning on the saxophone. These are a few of my favorite things. They're fun songs to sing. They're fun songs to make fun of, you know, and to kind of change the words to. I've been doing that my whole life. How do you solve a problem like Maria? My mom's middle name was Maria. All of that. Just lots of fun. This this Christmas season, uh, they had the sing-along version uh, on TV, and I recorded the sing-along version, so it had the words at the bottom. Um, So those words you think you know that were part of the song, that you sing all the time, you find out really aren't. But I had to basically watch the movie alone. Most of my family did not want to hear me singing all those songs. It's not just a favorite of mine. It's been a favorite of our families. Uh, I can so remember how much my mom uh, loved The Sound of Music. She loved it so much so, as a family, uh, we recognized my mom's love for The Sound of Music that one of the songs we played at their funeral was Edelweiss. And uh, just about every song is memorial. Memorable we, words that we think, all except one, I think, except one that's you know it's kind of okay, just not as much. It's called "I Have Confidence." It's a song that Maria sings as she's leaving the Abbey, and she's on her way for the first time to the Von Trapp family home. As familiar as we are with the movie, probably none of us right now could start to sing the words to that song, "I Have Confidence." The song about Maria mustering up her confidence to be the governess for this new family, this seven children. It's a song that she sings to herself. She challenges herself to seek courage. and to, She says to herself four times in the song, I have confidence in me. The song ends with her you know, going through the entrance to the Von Trapp family home and just boldly singing out so loud, I have confidence in confidence alone. Besides what you see, I have confidence in me. That's us, right? That's so often we do that. We can be so much like Maria. Now, perhaps not singing a song to ourselves, but many of us do the same things. We try to inspire ourselves to confidence. I know I do that a lot. We self-talk to ourselves like Maria was in that song or like the little engine that could, right? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. 
We try to gain confidence and courage. Of course, the pitfalls of such confidence is that there's that other voice that is often ringing in our heads as well, doubting if we can do it. So the result is that our confidence ebbs and flows. One day confident and secure and courageous and ready to conquer the world, and the next day doubting and uncertain and fearful and shrinking back. That's realistic because mustering up confidence in ourselves is only partially helpful and effective. It's never quite enough. It never really carries the day. And what's interesting is that sometimes we can even take this approach to our walk with Christ. You know, we pump ourselves up today. We muster our strength. Today I am going to be obedient to Jesus Christ. We challenge ourselves to do better. We fan the flame of our confidence. We can do it today. I'm going to be a great follower of Christ today. But then, of course, the bad days, the hard days, when it's all just too much to do, when we have no strength to muster, we have no confidence to fan into flame, our lives falter, our courage wanes, our effort to follow God fades, and we give up or we give in. And thus goes the roller coaster of our walks with Christ. All good when confidence is high, when everything's great, full of strength and, and hope. All bad when confidence is low, when courage is faltering, trust is ebbing. We don't have the strength to muster. Guess what? Life doesn't have to be that way. Christian life doesn't have to be that way. To, today, we can learn to get off such a roller coaster, to take our confidence off of ourselves by not deter, determining our strength by how well our circumstances are going. And instead, we can find the confidence outside of ourselves, finding our strength outside of ourselves, finding it in a perfectly constant perfectly loving, amazingly powerful Jesus Christ. How different would your life be if your confidence wasn't based on your competence, but on his power? How different would your life be today if it wasn't based on your ability, but on his ability? How different would your life be today if your hope wasn't based on your circumstances, but on what he did for you. Well, today could be that day where our trust grows beyond a performance-based relationship with Jesus Christ to a true love-based relationship with Jesus Christ. Today could be the day where your trust goes beyond God helping you to get through another day into the reality that God has already given you all that you need to make it through that day. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And follow along as I start reading at verse 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
if you know that he is righteous, that you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Father, we pray now that these words given to us by your Holy Spirit would come alive to us through the Holy Spirit, challenging us and changing us and comforting us giving us wisdom so that we might greater understand your love and live in a relationship with you that is love-based and not performance-based. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to look at four pillars of confidence that all believers have. The first is we have confidence in whose we are. The picture in verse 28 and in verse 2 is amazing. And someday is going to be a reality. Someday Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, will appear. Verse 2 and verse 28 says, when he appears. See, this is not some theological construct that John is teaching. John lived with Jesus for three years. John saw Jesus killed on the cross. John was the first disciple to look into the empty tomb. John was in the upper room when the resurrected Jesus first appeared to them. And John was also on that Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem when this happened in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6. It says, So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you look standing into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. How John must have anticipated that day. Think about it. That day when Jesus would come back. He had already seen the resurrected Christ. He was so looking forward to that wonderful day when he would again see Jesus face to face. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one's bringing. Glorious Savior, this Jesus is mine resonates with John's heart, with our heart. One day he's coming. 
Oh, glorious day. See, John was looking for that one day. John was looking for that wonderful day, that glorious day, when his beloved, glorious Savior would appear. John had the full assurance, the vibrant confidence, that when Jesus appears, he'll be loved and received and accepted. He looked for it. Not because of who he was or not because of anything he had done, but solely because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Verse 29 describes believers as being born of him. Verse 1 and verse 2 says that we are children of God. See, those who stand in their own righteousness, who stand outside of Christ, who are doing life their way and rejecting the way, who are just fine without Jesus, when he appears... Verse 28 says, they will shrink from him in shame at his coming. When the righteous one appears, he will expose our unrighteousness. We would all shrink away in shame. All of us. There is no possible way that we could have confidence within ourselves. There is no possible way that we could have confidence in our own efforts. There is no possible way that we could have confidence in our own performance on that day when he appears. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. See, it's not because of who we are. It's not because of anything that we have done that we will have confidence at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's only because of whose we are and what he has done. Only because we've been born of him. Only because we're a redeemed child of God. Only because we stand in his righteousness, covering and forgiving our unrighteousness. Only because of whose we are. Will that day be a wonderful day, a glorious day, only because Jesus is mine? Listen to this quote. Here's John's point. Christ is coming again. He will appear on this earth again, officially and in full public display, as the King of kings and the Lord over all lords. So when he appears, will you have boldness? Or will you be ashamed before him? Will you run towards him as a child runs towards a loving father? Will you draw back and attempt to hide from his glorious regal coming? See, if your life is about you, if your life is about your works, if your life is about your performance, you will be exposed and you will draw back. But if your life is about him, in him, abiding in him, his righteousness, covering our unrighteousness, then we will have confidence as a child to the Father, as children of God. We'll even have the boldness to run up to him at his appearing. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who was in every respect has been tempted yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Today, this very day, right now, you can only draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because of what the great high priest did for us. And on that day, at his appearing, we can only draw near to him with confidence because of what Jesus did for us. We have confidence alone in Jesus. We have confidence, not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. Next, as believers, we have confidence because of his love. Look at verse 1 there with me. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The King James, as many of us know, because we sung this song, the tune that goes with it, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. We should be called children of God. What powerful, personal, and literally out of this world verse this is. So I'm going to have them put it on the screen here behind me. And I want us to say this verse together. Okay? To get this verse off the page into our mouths and hearts this morning. Let's say it together. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. All right, that was good. We're going to do it again. Give it some emotion. Put it in your heart. Think about it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. How awesome. What an incredibly positive and powerful verse. You know the Greek word translated there, what kind of? speaks of something that has come from another country. It's a word that means something special. It means something exotic. It means something beyond anything that you've ever experienced before. The verse can be translated, see what out of this world kind of love the Father has given to us. God's kind of love is no comparison. See what exceptional, what incomparable, what extraordinary, what inexhaustible kind of love the Father has given to us. That we, you and me, us, we get to be called children of God. And not just called children of God, we are actual children of God. See, God's love for us is unconditional. What does unconditional mean? It means that it has no conditions. God's love for his children is not based in any way upon our performance. God's love for his children is not in any way able to be earned. It's not in any way able to be lost. God doesn't love you more when you're obedient. He doesn't love you less when you are disobedient. God's love for his children is unconditional. It has no conditions. It is out of this world, extraordinarily unique and different than our kind of love. We have no other relationship where love is so truly, so perfectly, so completely unconditional. Human-to-human love, even in its most purest sense, a parent uh, to a child, uh, a married couple, we are so often conditional with our love. We regularly have to fight against the tendency 
for our love not to become conditional, not to be based on the response of the other person, for it not to be based on the one that we are loving, meeting certain conditions or expectations. Our human love can be can so easily fall into performance-based love. A love that is earned through reciprocal actions. A love that is strong when things are good and everything is fine. A love that is weak when things are bad or hard or difficult. And there's a very simple reason why our love lacks pure, unconditional love. It's called sin. It's called selfishness. We are selfish. Our best love is tainted by sin. We've all heard, so many of us have experienced a sibling not talking to another sibling for years. A spouse saying to another, I don't want to be with you anymore. A child rejecting the love of their parents. Parents disregarding their child. How fickle, how insecure, how inconsistent, how demanding, how selfish our love can be. But beloved, hold on to your seats, get ready for this. God doesn't love us that way. Did you hear that? Not at all. He does not love us that way. God's kind of love is no comparison. See what exceptional, what incomparable, what extraordinary, what inexhaustible kind of love the Father has given to us. God's love is truly unconditional. God's love is out of this world unique. Now, can I tell you something here this morning that's the best truth you have ever heard in your whole life? And that is, that's the way God loves you. That's the way God loves you. God loves you. God loves you with this out-of-this-world kind of love. Now, I want to look at that further. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. The end of Romans chapter 8 is so powerful, describing God's love for us. And I want to read that and talk about that to make sure today we get as accurate a picture as human minds can feebly put together about the love of God. What shall we say then, starting in verse 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. 
So what's going to separate us from the love of God? Think about this. What will separate us? Tribulation? Suffering? Distress? No. Persecution? Ridicule? No. Does being in need of even food and clothing separate us from the love of God? No. How about being in danger? How about having your life in danger? Does that separate you from the love of God? No. Not death, not the future, not angels, not demons, not the greatest obstacles of our life. Not cancer, not loss of a loved one, not bankruptcy, not divorce, not anything. In all of creation, nothing. Nothing is able to separate you from that out-of-this-world kind of love that Jesus Christ has for you. Nothing. Oh, beloved, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. God loves you just that way with his exceptional and incomparable and extraordinary, inexhaustible love. God loves us in a billion different ways. But what today is his greatest expression of love? Can we say that God has given us his greatest expression of love? And yes, we can. 1 John 4, 9-10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into this world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the greatest expression of God's love is in the giving of his son to be the sacrifice for our sins so that we might live through him, so that we should not perish but have eternal life. If you have the son, you have God's love. If you're a redeemed child of God through the propitiation, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins, you have God's love. So, folks, what else do we need? Think about this now. What more could you want? God loves you. He's given you his son. He has given you life and eternal life. What challenge are you facing? What heartache are you facing? What loss are you facing that cannot be conquered by the love of God? What else do you need to provoke you to a lifetime of worship to our God. Listen to this quote. If God never did another thing for you, never answered another prayer, never healed a disease, never gave us strength, never offered a wisdom, if God never did another thing for you but saved your soul, should not simply from that pour from our lips ceaseless praise now and through all eternity? See, God's love through his Son and our salvation, that alone is enough to fill us, overflowing with worship and praise all the days of our lives. 
in the midst of the challenges and difficulties of life. Folks, the reality is that God loves us in so many multiple billions of ways in addition to the ultimate love that he has given us through his Son. Are you lacking confidence today? God loves you. Are you insecure today? God loves you. Are you feeling broken down today? God loves you. Are you stuck today? God loves you. Are you holding on to your past? God loves you. Are you tired of the roller coaster life? God loves you. So today, take your eyes off the circumstances of your life. Take your eyes off of yourself and draw that steady gaze to the fact, the reality, the surety that God loves you and his love has made all the difference. He loves you right now and nothing, N-O-T-H-I-N-G, no thing can separate you from God's love. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace and his great, incredible, undescribable love that he has for us. Next, in verse 2, we see that we can have confidence in our completion. We are so wonderfully incomplete as humans. We are so fallen and and dependent and selfish people. Our salvation through the gospel has rescued us. Our salvation has has, um, saved us from the consequences of our sins. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Our salvation is secure and complete. We are children of God. But our transformation is yet ongoing. The challenge of actually living a life based on a love relationship with Jesus Christ is an ongoing, regular, daily challenge of our lives. We are secure in the immutable love of God. Yet we need to put off the old man, the old ways of our living, and through the renewing of our minds, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, laying down our lives on the altar of spiritual worship as we not conform ourselves to the world around us, but we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever loses his life will save it. You see, we're all in process now. But one day that process is going to end. One day we're going to be complete. Verse 2 says that. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We are already today, right now, God's children, but we have not yet realized the full experience of all the benefits of our salvation. We're still in progress. We're still under construction. We're a divine work of art that is not yet complete. 
We can't even imagine what that day is going to be like. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on that day, that day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Our feeble minds just can't comprehend what it's going to be like to be like Jesus. But we are confident. We know it. We are God's children now. And when he appears, we shall be like him. Next, we have confidence in our hope. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, folks, spiritual hope is assurance. Hope is anticipation. Hope is the surety of God's promise. Hope is a certainty in God. Hope is the guarantee of God's word. Where's your hope? Where's your assurance? Where's your, your anticipation? Is your hope in who you are or in whose you are? Is your hope in your circumstance getting better? Or is your hope in the constant love through any circumstance of our God? Is your hope in, in making yourself acceptable to God? Or God making you into his unique work of art? Is your hope full of confidence because it's based on Jesus, because it's based on his word and his promise and his character? See, if you have that kind of hope, it purifies you. Hope in God, in his love, in his plan, in his purposes, in his character purifies us. It makes us more holy, more like our Jesus. Hope transforms our everyday struggles into opportunities for God to do his work in and through us. So right now, evaluate, think. Where's your confidence? Where's your trust? What are you hoping in? Is it in you and your ability? Is it in living life your way? Is your confidence found in who you are? Is your hope in the circumstances of your life turning out better? Or in the ever-constant, ever-widening love of Christ? The greatest love ever shown to any of us was when God sent his son to die in our place for our sins. And then Jesus rose again in victory, securing for us and offering to us a real life. A life with purpose, a life with meaning, a life with hope, a life with significance, a life with real love. And a life that lasts for all of eternity. Now there are some here this morning that have never come to God. And have never accepted this greatest gift of love that he is offering to you this day, right now. Today could be your day to become a child of God. Christian God's love through his son in our salvation, that alone is enough for us to overflow with a lifetime of worship and praise, no matter the circumstance. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. What else do you need? Christ is all we need. Is that the way you're living your life today? Let's pray.
Father, we just pray now. Because we're trying to understand something that is really beyond our understanding. We need your Holy Spirit to give us insight to know what it means that you love us. What it means that you sent your son to die for us. How significant and important it is that your word tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, teach us what that means so that we might walk out of here in a love-based, faith-based, trust-based relationship with you and not a performance-based, roller coaster ride, up and down relationship, but one that is rock solid, full of hope and purity and future, even in the midst of the hardest circumstances of our lives. That's the truth we need to learn today. Help us. Apply it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to sing this last song here. It's well with my soul. And Brother Tom picked out this song, but it fits so perfectly with what we've talked about today. So I want to close. As many of you know, but some of you perhaps don't, know the story of this song. Horatio Spafford. He was this wealthy Chicago lawyer, this thriving legal practice, beautiful home, wife, four daughters, a son, was a devout Christian man, studied faithfully the scriptures. His circle of friends were Dwight L. Moody. He went to Moody's church, Iris Sankey, and other well-known Christians of his day. At the very height of his financial and personal success, Horatio and his wife, Anna, suffered the tragic loss of their young son. Then uh, shortly thereafter, on October 8, 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed almost all of the assets of the Spafford family. In 1873, Spafford scheduled a a boat trip to Europe in order to give his wife and his daughters a much-needed vacation and time to recover from these tragedies. He also went there because Moody and and Sankey were doing an evangelistic campaign in England at the time, and they were going to join him. Spafford sent his wife and daughters ahead of him, and he remained in Chicago because he had to take care of some unexpected last-minute business. Well, several days later, he received a notice that his family's ship had been in a collision. And all four of his daughters had drowned. And only his wife survived. So with a heavy heart, Spafford boarded a boat that would take him to his grieving Anna in England. And it was on this very boat trip. It was here in the midst of of the greatest grief and difficulty of his life. It was here when you could just give it all up for Christ. Look at all I've done for you, he could have said, right? Look at all I've sacrificed for you. What are you doing? This is the way it works. I do good things, you do good things back. That's the way it's supposed to work. He didn't do that, folks. He had a real relationship with Jesus Christ and God's love for him was enough and he penned these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like 
see Bilo's role. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It's well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials could come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Imagine that. Imagine being so captured by your salvation in Jesus Christ that in the midst of the greatest tragedy of your life, you're able to say it is well with my soul. Man, I want a faith like that. Stafford is telling us something today. The same thing the Bible was telling us today. That the love which God brings to us through our salvation is the one thing. It's the one thing that can carry us. That never separates from us. Through the trials and loss and sorrows. of The love of God is the greatest one thing in our lives. It's the greatest thing. So as we sing this song now. And the passion of your heart to God and the brokenness of your sin, sing the songs to Him as a prayer and give it to Him and find the confidence that only you can find in Jesus Christ alone. Let's sing together. It is number 478, if you'll turn there. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like
messages like this that you put into a hymn writer's hand with with a pen. We just praise you for your love for us. Unconditional love that never fails. And we just lay all of our sins and all of our baggage right at the foot of the cross. Thank you so much for the blood of Jesus that makes us righteous. In Jesus' name.